When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ripple, nothing personal, word of the day. It is November 1st, 2022. Ripple, say it with me. It's a great word to say. The ripple effect. I like that when you drop a stone in a puddle and you see all the concentric circles as they get further and further away from where the stone dropped. That's the ripple effect. Every action has a reaction has another action associated with it. There's a train of stuff that happens when a decision is made like to postpone a World Series game. That is no small deal. It was raining in Philadelphia last night. The forecast was for rain. You didn't need professional meteorologists to low look at your app and to see the cell that was coming through. There was no avoiding the fact that this game was going to be plagued by rain. Major League Baseball was aware of that early in the afternoon, much earlier than they announced it at 6.45 when they finally postponed the game. They were aware of it, let's say at 3, that this game was not going to happen. The ripple effect of a decision is not just about a pitching staff, and that's what everybody was talking about. Who's going to pitch now for the Phillies? Nah, that's only one of the little circles. The World Series is a big event. It's a special event that requires all sorts of things. So for example, you've got several hundred people who are in the city as media people. You have several hundred people who are part of the commissioner's office, who are part of the league, part of teams. Everybody's traveling according to a schedule that has been given to them by the league. The games in Philadelphia were supposed to be on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with an off day Thursday where you travel to Houston and then you play in Houston, if necessary, Friday, Saturday. What does that mean? That means that you've got your hotel in Philadelphia checking out Wednesday because the game Wednesday night is the final game in Philadelphia. See you later. You have your hotel in Houston checking in on Thursday. Think about what has to happen when you move the entire series, because baseball didn't just postpone the World Series last night. They moved the entire frickin' calendar. So tonight is game three, it's Tuesday, but then Thursday is game five. Okay, that makes sense. Use the off day to play the game. But Friday, they're making an off day, 
which means the World Series Game 6 is now Saturday, not Game 7. Game 7 is now Sunday, not the first day of the offseason. In order for that to be announced and that change to take place, everything had to be taken care of in advance. Hotels had to be contacted. Sites for parties that are going on in Houston or Philadelphia had to be contacted to make sure the new dates could be accommodated. It wasn't about making sure the charter planes were available. It wasn't making sure the players didn't have plans on Sunday. It wasn't anything about that. And then on top of that, you had to go to Fox and have an entire conversation with Fox, who's broadcasting the World Series, making sure that the 8 o'clock time slot on Sunday, that they were okay going with baseball as counter-programming to Sunday night football, making sure that on Thursday night they were good for going with baseball against the Amazon Prime game. There is an issue in Philadelphia and Houston as it relates to the football game because the Eagles are playing the Texans. The undefeated Eagles are playing the Texans on Amazon Prime. But part of the deal with the NFL is that while it's on streaming Amazon Prime in Houston and Philadelphia in the home cities of the teams playing, they get an opportunity for over the air. And so that was a game that was going to be on Fox. Now it's not locally. Now it's not going to be. So it'll be fascinating to see who gets what in the Houston-Philadelphia area. If I'm Major League Baseball, I want the World Series on Big Fox. I don't want it moved to FS1. It's a regular season football game. If I'm Fox, more people are going to watch the regular season football game than the World Series game. The World Series and Fox did an entire PR release extolling the excitement and the virtue of 11.5 million people who watched World Series Game 1. Hip, hip, hooray. An increase of 5% or 8% or 10% above last year and 18% above 2020, whatever the numbers were. I remember inside baseball, we would get these releases because they'd be sent to the teams before they're released to the media outlets. So we'd always get an advanced look, you know, by a few minutes or something. And we would always be looking at the positive. You always want to celebrate. You always want to accentuate the positive. But to me, when I'm doing a press release that accentuates the positive, that so ignores the 800-pound gorilla right sitting in the room, I always feel it's so disingenuous that we're not going to trick anybody. Do you think anybody is tricked that the announcement by MLB and Fox of the 11.5 million people, it's not even close to the number of people watching the NFL regular season on Sunday, like not even in the neighborhood? So Fox has to be called when there's a rain out, when you're thinking of moving the schedule, because you cannot just do it and then call up Fox and say, hey, by the way, you have to show the game Sunday night. I know you had planned on ending the series on Saturday night. This takes time. This doesn't just happen in an hour. The fact that MLB was able to get this done in just over three hours is pretty awesome. It means they had to make the decision to postpone, and they tell players, here's how word gets to the players so the players don't start their pregame routine. You are speaking to the team owners and the team presidents, if you're Major League Baseball, early in the day yesterday on Monday, and you have a pretty good idea that this game is not going to be played. Now, in the World Series, in the regular season, you could sit around for hours and start a game at 10 o'clock. They started a playoff game at 8.30. As you recall, there was a rain delay earlier in these playoffs. For the World Series, they're not going to do it. They're not going to start you in a delay, and they're not going to start a game that they don't think they can finish. 
That is a big change if you recall what happened in Philadelphia in 2008. Do you remember they were playing uh, the Rays, I think, Coca? And they had to suspend a game in the middle of a game and restart it the next day. No, baseball will never do that again. So the rule that baseball has is if they don't see a four-hour window, of course, we're trying to get faster games and trying to make things pace of action, pace of play. So it's not that they're looking for a a two-and-a-half-hour window or a two-hour and 48-minute window. No, no. It's got to be a four-hour window. Now, granted, postseason games are longer because the commercial breaks are longer. They go 245 instead of 215. That's two minutes and 45 seconds. Go ahead and count the extra ads. There's an extra ad that gets sold by Fox. That's one of the ways that Fox is able to increase the amount of money it gives to baseball. But in any case, so there has to be a four-hour window, and there was no four-hour window in Philly last night. Now, the weather today in Philly is going to be gorgeous, and for the next three days, it's going to be gorgeous. There's nothing to worry about. Houston has a roof, which means the World Series is ending Sunday at the latest. So then everybody got on TV, including me on CBS Sports yesterday, talking about where the advantage was. What's the ripple effect of this rainout on the field? Well, Noah Syndergaard was going to start for the Phillies last night. He's now not starting for the Phillies tonight because they get to start Ranger Suarez. You may remember Ranger Suarez as the lefty out of the bullpen in game one. Well, guess what? He's a starter. He's their third starter. Middle of the rotation guy. Not on a championship team, but a decent middle-of-the-rotation guy on a decent 87-win team. But it helps because he's better than Syndergaard. But where it really helps is they get to go back to NOLA in Game 4 instead of Game 5 because the series is an extra day. So Aaron NOLA, the Game 1 starter, will get to start Game 4 where the Phillies will either be up 2-1 or down 2-1, quite obviously. Either way, it becomes a critical game because you either have to tie the series at 2 or try to go up by 3-1. You don't want to go down 3-1, especially to the Astros. So Aaron Nola gets to come back on regular rest. And then the thought was that Zach Wheeler, the Game 2 pitcher, will come back on regular rest in Game 5. And then you worry about 6 later and 7 later, but Suarez can come back and pitch Game 7. Short rest, but he could do it. But then Philadelphia announces something that I would not have announced. For whatever reason, they made it clear to the Astros that Zach Wheeler was not going to be available in Game 5. They're going to give him an extra two days of rest, and they're going to pitch him in Game 6 on Saturday back in Houston. If I am the Houston Astros and I get that information, we're trying to guard our pitching information with our lives. With the gambling now, we have to disclose it to baseball earlier than I would have liked, but not by days. It's by hours when you give your lineup and baseball has to know. It's not like the All-Star game where you announce the starting pitchers and then they meet the media and you have a whole big press avail. In the World Series, there's a competitive advantage to not making your pitching plans crystal clear. In this case, by making the plans clear, if I'm Houston, man, I don't want to face Zach Wheeler again, even with arm fatigue, even when he's throwing 69 to 89 pitches, even when we tagged him for five runs. I don't want to face him in game six. I'm trying to get this series done in Philadelphia, even though the likelihood of sweeping in Philadelphia is de minimis, I am still letting my guys know, listen, I don't want to drag Philly back with us when we fly home on uh, Friday, on Thursday night. Let's just fly home to a parade. And to do that, we got to start with game three. 
And if we start with game three, then we have pressure on Philadelphia. But the interesting thing about Houston is they announced that their game four starter is not going to be Justin Verlander, who went against Aaron Nolan game one, who could have come back on regular rest in game four. Instead, the Astros are going with Christian Javier who is a solid number four starter. You may have seen him pitch in the playoffs before this off, this season. He is He's good. Don't get me wrong. And yes, Verlander is 0-6 in the World Series. Yes, he has the worst ERA in the history of any pitcher with a minimum of 30 innings in the World Series, whatever the stat is. All of those things are very true. However, however, I don't want Philly knowing that they're not facing Verlander because even with Verlander being ineffective, there's something about him that as an opposing team, you're like, ah, I'm facing Justin Verlander. Eventually, he's going to have to win his first World Series game. He is the Cy Young favorite. He's going to win the Cy Young Award. I don't want the Phillies going into game three if I'm the Astros and saying, hey, if we get game three here and we beat McCullers, we have a really good chance at winning game four wow, we can then be up three games to one and the Astros will have to sweep us three in a row to win the World Series. So there's a lot of games going back and forth with this rainout. I was pretty surprised at the amount of information that was given, but the ripple effect of this is now going to be felt throughout the entire series. The bullpens are getting an extra day of rest. Yesterday they got an extra day. Friday there's a day off that they don't lose, even with this rainout where they could have lost a day had MLB not extended the schedule. So... We are going to watch this over the next five days. The baseball season is ending by next Sunday, period. Today's Tuesday. It's coming to an end. Ripple effect. All right. I want to talk about, we got to talk a little Lakers again. It's too good. Coca, talk to me. You know what I want? (laughs) I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. Get in Twitter at David P. Samson. Ask me a question. It may come up. Hey, David. Hey, that's a good start. Did you see how the Lakers celebrated Darvin Ham's first victory? After an 0-5 start, what are your thoughts? Love this question. If you didn't see the video, so the Lakers with LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis and, 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 they were 0 for the season, and they finally got a win over the Denver Nuggets. And what they showed in the clubhouse, you would have mistaken for a pennant celebration in baseball. Total insanity. Here's my answer to your question. I did see how they celebrated it. And that is standard operating procedure for a coach who gets his first victory with a team. You celebrate it. It's just normally not necessarily on film, though everything's already on film. I've been a part of so many managers winning their first game. The most interesting one was Dan Jennings, who our general manager, who we made manager. When he won his first game, there was a huge, huge celebration. All the players were so happy. And these were the same players who were questioning why we made that move, not happy that he was the manager, wondering whether he'd be a mole for the front office, not realizing that he was going to go so anti-front office that he was going to become a player's manager that would impact him going forward. But the players celebrated the first win because all players on all teams and all sports recognize how rare and how cool it is for a coach or manager to get a victory at all. Forget 100 victories or 1,000 victories. Getting your first victory as someone in charge is really, really cool. So I am in favor and totally fine with the celebrations that took place. 
while you would argue an 0-5 team who wins a game, 1-5, they should not be celebrating. What they were celebrating was Darwin. And I wanted to be clear because when Dan Jennings won his first game, when a bunch of our managers won their first game, when you make a managerial change during a season or you have a new coach or manager and your season has not started off the way you thought it would, I don't like celebrating the fact that we've just reversed failure, however, temporarily. I want to celebrate sustained success, and I want to punish both current and sustained failure. However, in the case of a coach or manager, if they want to celebrate his or her or their victory, I'm good, as long as the players understand we're not celebrating being one in five. It's something that I used to talk to players about, and here was what the answer they would give me. I was always bothered when players would celebrate a home run in the ninth inning when they're down 6 nothing, and then someone hits a solo home run, and they go to the dugout, they get the, 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 the cart treatment or the turnover chain treatment, or they do the 49 handshakes, and they're jumping up and down and celebrating. It always bothered me, and I would say, and I did this numerous times, I would go in the next day, because never after the game, and I'd go in and say, hey, what's with that? Like, don't, can't you just hit the home run and then sit down? We're losing the game 6-1. We lost the game 6-2 after your home run. What exactly are we celebrating? It's the same concept in football when they do a touchdown dance down 35-7 to and they score with a minute left in the fourth quarter. And what every player has said to me over the years, and I've internalized it, I've thought about it, and I still can't get through it. David, we're celebrating the individual accomplishment. Whether the team is winning or losing, the accomplishment of hitting the home run is to be celebrated, much like the accomplishment of scoring a touchdown or kicking a field goal. Something good that happens on the field that's done by a player, something athletic that is done, we celebrate regardless of team situation. That is the answer that must be given in union school first-year class. In management school, first-year class, what we are taught is you can celebrate a business victory, but do it quietly. No one wants you to stand up after your team loses 100 games and say, hey, this team operated at a profit, made $20 million, and the value of the team went up $100 million. Sorry about the 100 lost season. It's page one in the manager's book or in the president's book. You don't say that publicly. You could do the Snoopy dance in your desk. You can have a great Christmas party with tons of dancing and horse dwarves. But you don't go public. And now it's so different because everything's public. Everyone's got the phone. I'm surprised the Lakers didn't have the uh, branded goggles for their celebration with ham. Or a branded ham. It's ridiculous. So I get it. The Lakers are something, aren't they? Russell Westbrook is coming off the bench. I guess it's a good thing now. The whole thing of a sixth man makes me laugh. Can we talk about that for a minute? In basketball, there's something called a sixth man. There's five starters for each team, 10 people on the court at a time. And then there's the first guy off the bench. The first guy off the bench is called the sixth man because he's the sixth player to enter the game for your team. Fine. I love the microwave. Vinnie Johnson was my favorite sixth man. And it's a role that has become important in basketball over the past 30 or 40 years. There's even an award, the Sixth Man of the Year Award. 
it's sort of like being the best bench player in baseball or the special teams player of the year in football. So the sixth man comes in, although in basketball, the sixth man has a far greater impact than a utility player in baseball or a special teams player in football. Here's why. In basketball, a sixth man comes in. Are you more concerned with who starts the game for your team or who finishes the game and plays crunch time minutes? In baseball, I am more concerned or as concerned about my starting pitcher as I am about my high leverage bullpen arms. I'm equally concerned about both. In basketball, I'm far more concerned about my closing five players than my opening five players. In football, I'm more concerned about my offense and defense and kicker. I'm happy when there's a special teams guy who's amazing, who can get down the field and tackle, or who's a great punt returner or a great kick returner, but I'm far more concerned with the offense and defensive side of the ball. All of this excitement, Russell Westbrook, if he still is playing 30 to 35 minutes, does it matter when the first minute is? If his first minute comes with five minutes left in the first quarter, thereby making him a sixth man, letting him complain about his hamstring, requiring a bicycle on the sideline to keep his hamstrings fresh and limber. But he's playing the same amount of minutes and still shooting six for 18, one for seven from three-point range, getting eight rebounds, seven assists, and the Lakers are winning 25 games and beating the lottery. Tell me, have they made a good decision? team's better off starting Russell Westbrook. Your team is way better off having Westbrook come in off the bench. It's all a bunch of fagazi. Teams need to be judged by wins and losses, not who's coming off the bench when, what the rotation is, who's getting the most minutes. No, I was always judged in wins and losses. Oh no, you've got Yelich and Ozuna and Stanton. Yeah, we never won 81 games. That's the judgment. The Lakers have to deal with Russell Westbrook. Having him come off the bench is not a solution because it doesn't make their team better because he's still playing. So what could they do? Could there be a trade of Russell Westbrook to the Nets? Maybe the Nets can get rid of Kyrie Irving, get rid of that problem, maybe. But that was available all offseason. Tampering is something that goes on. We know this. We know that there are players who want to play for certain clubs. We know that too. Miles Turner is a very good player for the Indiana Pacers. The Indiana Pacers are a, what would you call them, Coca? A moderate team? Would you call them a bad team? I'm not sure what your view, what, what your view would be of the Pacers. I would not call them championship contenders in any way. Miles Turner goes on and uh, gives an interview, goes on a pod, and said something that is awesome. He openly talked about the Lakers making a trade for him. He said, if I'm the Lakers, I take a very hard look at this with the position that you're in. And he was on a pod responding to a question about him playing for the Lakers. He said, I know what I can provide for a team, my leadership, my shot blocking, my three-point ability, and just my ability to make plays out there on the floor. And I take a very long look at it, but as far as pulling the trigger, I get paid to shoot. I don't like that sort of usage of words, but anyway, I'm not paid to make these calls, so I couldn't answer that. The question was about him becoming a Laker. Adam Silver is going to read this 
He already has, I'm sure. And Miles Turner is going to get fined. The reason Miles Turner is going to get fined is because he is tampering. He is not the property of the Lakers. He cannot be going public. He cannot be going on podcasts, no matter which podcast it is, and talking about another team that way. The reason why teams and leagues have these rules and the reason why teams violate these rules all the time, we'll talk about after the break which teams violated it and why they violated it. But you've heard me talk before, but there's a little update here today. But the reason players do it, you think that Miles Turner wants to be a Laker and play with LeBron, or would he like to be a Pacer? From a money standpoint, there is no difference other than maybe increased state taxes in California. But from a success standpoint, from a legacy standpoint, from a desire standpoint, of course you want to play with LeBron. And the reason why you can't allow players to openly talk about that is that how do people in Indiana feel? Not just executives, but also fans, sponsors. So the NBA from a macro standpoint, is trying to make sure that everybody is playing by the same set of rules where you're on a roster and you're on that roster until you're officially off that roster and until then, you can't speak of another roster. Can you imagine if the owner of the Pacers talked about it that way? Better yet, the owner of the Lakers, if Jeannie Buss started to talk about Miles Turner, she'd get fined a million bucks immediately. Turner won't get fined a million bucks, but he's going to get fined for openly talking about the Lakers. I promise you that. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to review a movie, and then I'm going to talk about what happened in the NBA with tampering and the Philadelphia 76ers because they did something this offseason when they signed a couple players, and they knew yesterday was coming, and they didn't care, and that fact has to bother the NBA. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 
Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name is David Sampson. Welcome. Thank you for downloading, rating, reviewing, telling your friends about us. Please go to YouTube. Remember, when we get to 10,000 subscribers, I don't know why we have not been able to do that yet. It's YouTube, Nothing Personal with David Sampson. There's way more of you listening to this, so thank you. But when you get to YouTube, you can take a look at the jacket, fine, but hit subscribe. It doesn't cost anything, and you don't get like, nothing bad happens to you. I watched the new movie that came out with Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain yesterday. It just came out on Netflix. It's called The Good Nurse. The Good Nurse is about, it's a true story, and The Good Nurse is Jessica Chastain, not Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne plays a bad nurse. Eddie Redmayne plays a nurse who over the course of many years back in the early 2010s was killing patients. And it's a story of how he did it, why he did it, him getting caught, and then sort of the postscript of what Jessica Chastain, what her role was in all of this. The Good Nurse has a cast. Jessica Chastain won the Academy Award. I mean, this is not a schlepper actress. Eddie Redmayne is an Academy Award winner. Jessica Chastain may only be an Academy Award nominee. Did she win for Tammy Faye Baker? Um, Coca last year, I can't remember. But Eddie Redmayne definitely won for The Theory of Everything. He won Best Actor. So these are this is a major cast. And this is a TV movie. Netflix can make some amazing movies with amazing budgets about interesting topics, and they can make it movie screen worthy. When you put two Academy Award winners in, and Jessica won for Tammy Faye and Eddie won for Theory of Everything, I was expecting a cinematic triumph. And instead, what I got was a bit of a movie of the week. And it's not like it's a budget issue. I know Netflix is have is trying to cut down in certain areas, but not in others. So this story did not require special effects. It didn't require car chases. It required a better script. To have Eddie and Jessica not perform at their highest level is not because they didn't bring their A game. It's because the words on the paper were not A-level words. The story is extremely upsetting. When you check into a hospital, you do not expect ever that there is a chance that you're going to be unsafe, right? That's sort of your baseline. It's the same when we review about uh, Boeing and 737 MAX planes. When you get on an airplane, your sort of base level is, hey, we're not going to crash. When you get into a hospital, your base level is, hey, I may not be cured, but I'm sure as hell not going to be killed. It's called The Good Nurse on Netflix. P-A-S-S. So the Sixers lost their second round pick. The NBA made a big announcement yesterday. It was a big deal. Do you remember, uh, if you're Heat fans, you may remember a player named P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker played for the Heat last year. There was a rumor that he was going to get a big contract, not from the Heat, because the Heat are smart, um, and that he was going to go to the Sixers. Well, soon after free agency began this past offseason, P.J. Tucker signed with the Sixers as well as Daniel House Jr. That was the whole thing when James Harden came out and said, I took a pay cut. Horse hockey. Now, there is backup 
to suggest that James Harden is being paid less money this year, that the total amount of money that he's being paid that he was owed this year has been spread out over more years, that in fact he's not going to get as much money as he would have gotten if he had just stayed in the one-year contract, and I'm not buying any of it. I've never seen a player who just hands over money. Now, you guys have come to me with examples where it's been reported that a player was happy to tear up a contract, take less money. You've seen quarterbacks do it, where they take a guaranteed portion of their money. Jimmy Garoppolo was rumored to have done it. I'll believe it when I see the bank accounts. So the Sixers signed these players, and the NBA, as it's been doing for the past couple of years, you remember they had a problem with the uh, – the Milwaukee Bucks and what they did with Bogdanovich before he ended up signed with the Hawks. There was tampering that was going on with a potential sign-and-trade deal with him that didn't actually work out. There is an investigation going on right now with the New York Knicks with the feeling that they tampered with Jalen Brunson because we knew the contract he was going to sign while he was still a maverick, for crying out loud. And then as soon as free agency started, he signed that exact contract. That's not a coincidence. Yes, these players are being tampered with. Yes, agreements are being made with these players before free agency starts. Yes, these agreements get announced way too quickly. Deals can't come together that fast. Even when you hit the bid and you just say to the player, dude, just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. It still can't happen overnight. There have to be physicals. You have to have guaranteed language that is negotiated and agreed upon. There's announcements. There's legal approval. There are tons of things that go on. So when you have announcements done that quickly, there is a reason. The process has started before it should. So the NBA has said, we know what we're going to do. We'll take away their second round pick. And believe you me, that will be the difference. Hmm. So let me tell you why it's not the difference. The Philadelphia Sixers lost their second round pick in 23 and 24. That's what the NBA said to do. Do you realize that the Sixers fully cooperated with this investigation because they had to, but they still have a second round pick in 2023 because of trades? So if you are a professional basketball team and you are putting together your roster and you are looking at whether or not there's room for rookies, where players fit in the salary cap, you're putting your roster together more than a year in advance. You're looking out over one, three, and five years. And if you know that an investigation is going to happen because you violated a rule and that the only likelihood is that you're going to lose a second-round pick, maybe two second-round picks, but you have an extra pick anyway, you go into it saying the punishment does not fit the crime, therefore I'm going to commit the crime every single time. That is the calculus that teams and companies use. You're telling me that I can't do guerrilla marketing. Okay, how much does it cost to do? How much revenue am I going to derive? And what's my fine going to be? I'm not allowed to sell unlicensed shirts outside a Major League Baseball stadium or a football stadium. Okay, how much is the cost of goods sold? What's the profit on each shirt? And what happens if MLB walks around or NFL walks around and shuts me down? Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? What happens if they report me? What happens if we get arrested? Will the company shut down? Every company, every person does this equation, right? If you knew, let me just ask it this way. I just got pulled over for speeding on the way to Stanford before the playoffs started. And when I'm speeding, I know that the risk is a ticket 
and points and insurance. If there were a law that was absolutely binding and no question that if you are caught going 20 miles over the speed limit, you will go to prison for 30 days. There's no trial. There's no jury. There's no nothing. That is just the result. Period. Guess what? I wouldn't go 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. If the punishment is such that it serves as a deterrent, then behavior changes. If the punishment is such that you say, eh, I'd rather not get caught, but if I do get caught, I'm fine, you're not going to change your behavior. If the NBA is serious about getting rid of tampering, they can't just take away a second-round pick or two second-round picks, fine an owner 250 grand. Here's what you do. You void the contract and take the player off the team. Why can't you do that? The union wouldn't allow it because P.J. Tucker bought a house in Philly, his family's in Philly, and he expected and wanted to be in Philly. They're not going to take away that right. Well, guess what? Then the teams aren't going to change their behavior. You think that Daryl Morey and Josh Harris are sitting around right now despondent that they lost their two second-round picks? It's a joke. The NBA's got to get its act together. Wouldn't it be interesting if they change those rules? Wait to see is when I tell you something's going to happen. And when it does, we revisit it. When it doesn't, we revisit it. I've got to wait to see for you right now. The NBA is going to tamper with its tampering rules. And they will have broader punishment power starting next year. Side note... It will not be enough to stop tampering, but it will move toward making owners question, hmm, should we wait? Nah, let's not wait, but wow, that's going to hurt just a little bit more. Wait to see. The tampering punishments and rules are going to get more significant. The NBA also looks to be that they are trying to figure out how to curb upper salary limits I wanted to mention this to you because one of the things that should drive you crazy is you think about teams and their ability to violate the salary cap. We did a whole segment. You can go back to it a couple weeks ago. It was a whole segment about the uh, the Golden State Warriors and the amount of luxury tax they're going to pay and on top of that, how high their salary was going to be. Well, the NBA would like to stop that from happening because you're beginning to have the haves and the have-nots. You're beginning to have huge salary disparity. So one of the things that they're looking to do is create an upper salary limit, and that is something that uh, is not going to work because unions love when teams can spend as much as possible. And so while the NBA would like that limit, uh, the question is, as they negotiate with the players, what would they be willing to give to the players to get that limit? And this is where the economics get involved. It's the same reason Major League Baseball does not have a salary cap or a salary floor because in order to get it, there would have to be concessions by players because players want a salary floor, but they don't want a salary cap. And owners want a salary cap. They don't want a salary floor. Therefore, two penalties cancel each other out offsetting penalties, you then have to go to the next step of what you're giving or getting with other ancillary issues. That's how collective bargaining works for the most part. So the NBA is going to be involved in this. 
what is your view? Do you like it when your team has the ability to run up massive payrolls? I mean, if you're a fan of Golden State or Brooklyn or the Dodger, the Dodgers, the Lakers, the Clippers, right? You've got to be happy. You've got to be happy that your teams have big payrolls. But does it matter to you? Hmm. Do you think that owners, if there were no more luxury tax and there was just a limit, that they would all spend to that limit? No. If the limit and the floor were the same number, then everyone would have the same salaries and the same payroll. If you are doing just an upper limit, trying to somehow make those teams spend less, trying to lessen the gap between the haves and the have-nots, hoping that it will rise the tide, raise the tide of the lower payroll teams, that's not how it works. Unless you demand low payroll teams to spend, they're not going to spend because they're not getting magic revenue. Unless you tell upper payroll teams that they're not allowed to go over a certain number, they're going to keep spending until their revenue runs out, and they are called, therefore, high revenue teams. We don't call them high payroll, low payroll. High revenue, low revenue. High revenue teams want to spend their revenue. Low revenue teams can't afford it because they're losing money. Period. Good luck with the NBA in that regard. Nothing. Personal pick of the day. We're still 124 and 103. No action last night as the game was rained out. The Astros, if you put the number in, I actually, Matt, how does that work? If you put the bet in yesterday and it was minus 170 or minus 155, let's say, for the Astros, but then now that they can start Suarez and not Syndergaard, it's down to minus 120. Is the bet in at what the number is when you placed it? Is that how that works? Or does it get voided and then we have to replace it? It gets voided? All right, so last night's bet was voided because there was no game. We're starting again. Astros over Phillies. Same reasons apply. The Astros are going to do the Phillies what the Yankees did to the Marlins. They're going to take back home field advantage immediately. Did you see in the NBA what happened to Josh Primo? This is a couple days ago. I wanted to really think about it. I didn't want to get into trouble tweeting about it too early because there was going to be more to the story. The San Antonio Spurs had a press release a couple days ago that they waived Joshua Primo, a first-round pick from 2021, like a lottery pick. And the CEO said, it is our hope that in the long run, this decision will serve the best interest of both the organization and Joshua. I read that release in that quote, and my first thought was this. Uh, we don't care as a team if releasing a player is in the best interest of the player. It's never part of the calculation. Under what scenario is releasing a player and not paying a player in the best interest of the organization and the player. Just out of curiosity. So I went to, in my head, mental health issues. Well, it's in the best interest of a player with mental health issues to get that player help. And that player can be put on a restricted list, but that player doesn't need to be released. If that player has a physical injury, you can put that player on an injured list and get the player that help without having to be released, even if that player is never going to come back. The rules are when you're on those sort of restricted lists that you're not losing a roster spot, you're not playing shorthanded. It's not like hockey where all of a sudden you're playing shorthanded without a player. 
You're still playing five on five. Your bench is still as long. So in the long run, what does serve the best interest of both an organization and a player? Is there any commonality? That's what was in my mind. I knew, of course, there had to be more to the story. And then yesterday, it came out that there are rumors that Josh Primo was exposing himself to employees within the San Antonio Spurs organization and then got released. There's two sides when you are a team dealing with that. Do you disclose why you released a player? Or do you release a player and not disclose? When the Spurs released him, they knew exactly what he had done, and that's why they released him. By giving a statement, by saying it's in the best interest of both the organization and Joshua, you are really not doing justice to the issue in your organization when an employee commits that type of harassment, whether that employee is a player, an owner, an executive, doesn't matter. When you've got someone doing that, you address it immediately. First you call your lawyers, then you call your HR people, then you speak to the league, and then you release the player. But the quote, in the statement, either has to be nothing, just an announcement that the player's been released, or you have to discuss what took place and explain why you did what you did. So not that you just only get credit for doing the right thing, but you explain your level of tolerance toward that action. What the Spurs did, and this is a high quality organization, Greg Popovich is one of the great coaches and men in the history of the sport. Why Greg Popovich is not named in this is clear. Why he would even agree or be a part of an organization where they were making a statement that stayed this quiet. I want there to be consequences to the action of any employee who does that. And a consequence of being released it's almost like being let off the hook. I don't know that I'm saying I want you hung in town square, but I'm saying that I want it to be very clear where we stand as an organization, where we stand as a society and as a league on this type of behavior. The NBA has stayed quiet about it, like the NBA stayed quiet about Kyrie. They've stayed quiet about Josh Primo. They just stay quiet. They weren't that quiet during what was going on in 2020 and the social reckoning but they certainly are quiet on the sexual things that go on, certainly quiet on the anti-Semitic things that are going on. Joshua Primo released a statement where he talked about getting the help he needs, and I want him to get the help he needs. That makes sense to me. He described it more as a mental health issue, and the reason I didn't buy a mental health issue is because when you're a a team, you don't release a player who has a mental health issue. Uh, that's against the law. You release a player when they're ineffective, when they stink. But if that's why you're releasing him, then you'd say that's why you're releasing him. By being so secretive and quiet, it makes you wonder what it was. And then we get it leaked, we find out what it was, but yet somehow 
Joshua's advisors and agents had him do a release not addressing what he did. Trying to prey on our sympathies by addressing his mental health. Now, I could sit here and argue pretty persuasively that anyone who goes around exposing themselves has mental health issues. That is not the way to act. It's not the way that you're going to get what you want. It's not the way that anything good can ever happen. Forcing yourself on someone, being racist, prejudiced, sexist, misogynistic. What is it about people being that way that thinks they're going to get ahead because they've got bias of the people around them, confirmation bias that they're thinking the right way or doing the right things? Is there like a society of people who expose themselves? Hey, it's good. It's normal. So maybe by definition, it's a mental health issue. There's a responsibility that leagues and teams have. And in this case, the Spurs dropped the ball and they did it for one reason only. They did it because in their mind, it'd be bad for business. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? It's just business. Sorry to the employee who was exposed to by Josh Primo if in fact that happened. This is nothing personal.